Welcome to Animal Health Insights. This podcast was created to connect producers, veterinarians, and animal owners, and to introduce you to the people and the organizations who are working to support animal health in Canada. Our podcast is developed with the support of the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Todd. Let's get started. Each year, a day is set aside as part of an international awareness campaign to highlight the importance of rabies, a fatal zoonotic disease that affects thousands of people and animals around the world. In North America, we're lucky to think about rabies pretty rarely, usually in the context of an animal bite, or we might think about it if and when a bat gets into the house. Canadian veterinarians may see a case or two of rabies every few years in horses, cattle, in dogs or cats, and occasionally in other mammalian species. With the surge of dogs imported into Canada through the pandemic, rabies and the possibility of people being exposed to rabies from a pet dog have become more of a risk. Dr. Martin Appelt, the Senior Director of the Animal Health Programs Division at the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, speaks with us today to review some recent changes to the rabies importation requirements for dogs and the reasons for their implementation to protect Canadians. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Appelt. Could you first tell us a bit about rabies and how it infects and affects mammals? Sure. Rabies is one of those diseases that affects mammals, including humans. It's a, it's a zoonosis. It's a viral disease. So one of the important hallmarks there is antibiotics don't work against a disease like that. And it's actually a really cool virus. If you ever have the chance to uh, look at one in an electron microscope, it looks like a bullet. It's a raptovirus. And one of the things to remember that I used was, yeah, it's a bullet to the brain because the rabies virus really has a, a strong affinity to the nervous system. It is normally transmitted through bites in very, very rare occasions through saliva in wounds, but that's not the main mode of transmission. It's really the bite. And from then on, the virus makes its way through the tissue to the peripheral nervous system, so to the nerves in wherever the region is that you got bitten, and eventually along those pathways ends up in the central nervous system and can really cause a lot of damage at that point already. Things like paralysis, uh, change in behavior, Many people know what's called sort of typical signs of of rabies in in some animals, uh, that they lose their fear. So that's the behavioral change, the fact that they uh, shy away from water because they have difficulty swallowing due to the effects the virus has on that part of the body, on your throat, and eventually they die. It is an invariable fatal disease. And rabies is the only disease of companion animals that is reportable to the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. So this means that veterinarians or diagnostic laboratories must report any suspicious cases to their regulatory veterinarians as soon as possible. Why is this disease such a high priority to monitor in Canada? Yeah, it seems a little strange at first, doesn't it? It is a disease that doesn't occur very often in humans. It is not a disease that we see in pets or domestic animals or companion animals in Canada a lot. So why is it that we are so interested in it? And in fact, the rarity of it is part of the reason. You may know the old saying that says, well, if you, if you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. That's also true when medical professionals need to assess patients. They certainly think horses and not zebras. 
So if you have very unspecific signs as a human, you know, you don't feel well, you have just general signs of illness or sickness, there would be a long list of diseases on a doctor's mind to rule out or confirm, but not necessarily rabies at the top of the list. And that's a danger. And the danger is that the longer uh, rabies goes undetected, unchecked, the more difficult it is to take action. And generally in humans, once the rabies virus made its way into the peripheral nervous system, the disease will end fatal. There's no cure for it. And that makes it a, a really, really serious event. And that is the reason why, as a regulatory agency, we really do not want rabies introduced, or I should say reintroduced, into our uh, companion animal. Canada has not had companion animal cases in a long time. We do have rabies in, in, in Canada in the, in the wildlife. And uh, certainly if you get bitten by a raccoon or by a skunk, rabies may be higher on the list for, for the medical professionals treating you as a possible rule out, but not necessarily when you get nicked by a dog. As I mentioned in the introduction, and you've just mentioned here, we do see occasional cases of rabies in Canada. If this disease is already here, why are we so concerned about importing dogs and having those dogs bringing it into the country? So that's, that's really the key question, isn't it? And it is true that rabies is here in some of our wildlife to a certain extent, but we do not have it as a general rule in the companion animal population. So if a child gets bitten by a personally owned dog, generally rabies is not the big concern. It's the bite wound. And we tend to treat patients uh, in the hospital accordingly. Unless there are very, very strong signs to suggest that uh, there is a risk. For example, you know, it, it's a stray dog. Nobody knows where it came from and it might be living out there in the woods somewhere. Then there is a, a questionnaire or a rule out procedure for the hospital to determine whether rabies might be on the list or not. So we certainly do not want to ramp up the risk for humans. The Canadian population from an uh, immune or immunization standpoint, a vaccination standpoint, is not vaccinated against rabies. We, we don't have exposure normally and we certainly don't have any protective mechanism. It would, the disease would hit what's called a naive organism that really is not prepared for, for that particular virus attack. Unless you're a veterinarian and uh, you happen to, to be vaccinated simply because of the risk, or you work in a zoo, or you work with wild animals, but the general population certainly is not protected. And that really increases the risk. It also increases uh, the risk for other companion animals. So other dogs that are already here in Canada and might have interaction with other dogs that carry uh, the rabies virus. And that is how, how the disease would spread and start entrenching itself in the population. And we, we absolutely want to avoid that from happening. Could you tell us a bit about the types of strains of rabies that we see in Canada currently and how that might differ from some of the strains of rabies that could be imported into the country through an infected dog? Well, uh, I'm not claiming to be a rabies expert. And when it comes to really distinguishing the different strains, I think somebody who works in the lab environment might be a better partner. But in sort of broader strokes. In Canada, we, we certainly have a raccoon rabies strain. In fact, one might say it returned for a number of years. It had decreased quite uh, dramatically, but it's a significant problem in the US. 
and we have certainly seen uh, raccoon rabies migrate back uh, into Canada or across the border. So we see it in New Brunswick, in Quebec, and in Ontario. We do have a, a quite a distinct uh, rabies strain in Arctic fox, and that is endemic in northern Canada. Due to the, the geographical reality and the structure of the wildlife populations, there is really not a real possibility or prospect to eliminate it. In Arctic foxes, we see typically cycles of, uh, of rabies outbreaks. And sometimes they can become significant enough to really be a concern for northern public health partners. There is some evidence, historically speaking, if I remember correctly, that one particular bad Arctic fox outbreak in the north that goes back to the 1950s actually led to the spread of fox rabies into into Ontario and Quebec. So that actually the fox rabies strain came down from the north. That's sort of a bit of a of a Canadian view, right? And uh, people that work in the wildlife sector will be able to tell you a lot about the efforts that are underway to curb rabies in wildlife. It's not as if um, this was an issue that was ignored in Canada and, and nobody did anything about it. It's a disease that is very, very difficult to eradicate or fully control, but it is a disease that we can certainly reduce in magnitude. And uh, one of the activities that people undertake that really helps is to vaccinate their personal pets, the dogs and cats, against rabies. So to at least take this uh, population of animals out of the equation as a potential way for, for the disease to spread. Other measures in the wildlife certainly is the use of baits in order to, to vaccinate wildlife against the disease. And that's done at a provincial level on an annual basis. Dog population uh, management strategies in the north, making sure that stray dog populations do not grow out of control. So those are all those are all measures where jurisdictions uh, work together to uh, to reduce the risk. And of course, then there's bats, right? Let's not forget the bats. So if your hobby includes climbing into uh, caves a lot, where also bats tend to reside, thinking about rabies prophylaxis is probably probably a wise move. Bats do carry rabies. And in fact, I think the I don't want to speak out of turn, but, but I do believe that the last or latest human infections with rabies could be traced back to bats. Might not be right on that one, but they definitely uh, play a role. That's fair. And I, I think, and again, I'm not a virologist either, so I'm certainly not a specialist here, but I think when we have a country where rabies might be endemic in the canine population, meaning that it exists in that country and is passed, you know, from dog to dog, and there's sort of a, a canine strain of rabies, that we don't really see that in Canada, because our dogs are generally vaccinated. And, and it's not something that's circulating here amongst the dog population. But it is something that we might bring in if it was happening elsewhere. Yes. So again, that goes back to the reason why, why we are enacting those restrictions. Uh, exactly for the reasons that you mentioned. Other countries are not in, a, in as good a position as Canada is. They do have rabies entrenched in their canine population. It is a real risk. It's a risk, it's a risk to other dogs, other cats, other mammals, and humans. And we're lucky in Canada. We don't currently have to worry about this. Don't get bitten by a dog. But if you get bitten by a dog uh, in the park, chances are you will not contract rabies. The same cannot be said uh, when you get bitten by a stray dog in other countries. Uh, rabies might be very high on the list and the prophylactic treatment after potential rabies exposure is no fun. I believe currently it is six 
courses of treatment, which treatment means immunoglobulin injections. And uh, people that have gone through it uh, tell me that, yes, it is definitely not fun. So something that we do not want to expose an ever-increasing number of Canadians to. Could you then please review the intended changes to the dog importation regulations in Canada? Certainly. So we have worked with the Center for Disease Control in the United States uh, on this. CDC has published the results of an analysis they did that subsequently we validated about countries where the canine variant rabies is endemic. So it exists in large swaths of the uh, domestic animal population. We agree with CDC that we do not want dogs from those countries uh, to be brought to Canada in, in large numbers, as you typically see with commercial type imports. Uh, it is a risk. Uh, COVID factored in to, to a certain extent because uh, I don't know if you see it in your practice, but certainly a lot more dogs were uh, adopted. There is a lot more dog owners and dog owning families than pre-COVID. And uh, certainly that also means that we have more and more dog owners that know the basics about dogs, but otherwise uh, health-wise very little. So certainly introducing a disease of that magnitude puts a lot more people at risk. And the measures are geared towards preventing that. We focus on commercial dog imports. So that includes dogs that come in specifically for the purpose of adoption. That includes dog rescues. The issue there is that it is not possible to really prove that a dog from um, a country that's on the list does not carry rabies. That's really the challenge. So for the time being, until uh, there is a better way, uh, we will not be issuing any import permits for commercial dogs from those countries. And when will these um, rules be taking effect? We've announced uh, that we're going that route back in, in July, and that change in policy will take effect on September 28th, which coincidentally is World Rabies Day. So you've mentioned the list of countries that was developed with the CDC. It is a fairly long list, and it does include several countries from which international dog adoption agencies regularly do import dogs into Canadian homes. How was it developed exactly? As I mentioned earlier, we worked with the Center for Disease Control in the U.S. on this, and it is based on an analysis of uh, disease occurrence, epidemiology, results of, of testing in the context of imports, and that in the end led to, uh, to that list. I should say that all the countries that are on the list know that they are on the list. And the list is factual. It is not, you know, as some people might imagine, it's not a, a question of who are you friends with and who do you like. It's really a reflection of what the disease status is like in those countries. And perhaps to a lesser extent, uh, the ability of a public veterinary system to manage it and to appropriately certify and document dogs that are intended to travel elsewhere. What impact do you anticipate that these changes will have on the welfare of international dogs, but also of Canadian dogs? So let me start with the Canadian dogs. I do sincerely hope that this measure will help in maintaining the very good health status that Canadian dogs that are uh, adopted by or uh, living in, in the context of, uh, of a loving and caring family that enjoys every day with them. Because, as I said before, we do not want to burden them with another potentially fatal disease. 
As far as international dogs go, I think, you know, that's a question you can look at from, from different angles. Certainly, my heart goes out to people that want to improve uh, the lives of, of dogs that might be strays or might be in pounds in, in other countries. So on an individual basis, it's certainly going to be tough to essentially take away an outlet for some of those animals. But on the other hand, uh, having this outlet comes at a price for Canada and for all Canadians. And uh, it is a balancing act. If you just look back a few months, one of the events that happened was two dogs came into Canada from Iran in this case, and they were subsequently found to be infected with rabies. And the public health effort that needed to be triggered in response to that with uh, contact tracing a word that we are all uh, familiar with since uh, COVID times, contact tracing, so identifying individuals that uh, were exposed to those dogs, depending to what extent they were exposed and selecting them for post-rabies treatment. That was just a tremendous effort. So I think with those two dogs, it was over 50 humans that needed to be evaluated and treated. That is very onerous. It's also very expensive and it illustrates the risk to people. So we really do not want this to happen in any larger scale. And that's the balancing act I was talking about. Could a dog importer bring a dog from one of these countries into Canada through another country, for example? I did have that thought when I first heard of the rule change that perhaps, you know, there was some, I don't know, secret loophole that that might exist. Is that a possibility or has that been stopped as well? Whenever there are restrictions and whenever there are standards introduced, somebody will spend an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out how to get around them. For us, what is really important is to get the message out why we are doing what we're doing and to be clear and straightforward with the measures. Because we do not want to turn the screws so tight that we create a lot of collateral damage by impacting uh, dogs and people that really should not be caught by those measures. So is it possible to circumvent? Absolutely, it is possible. On the other hand, people that do that uh, should not forget that they do leave a trail. And subsequently, should there be an issue with animals that are imported, through a uh, grayish process or uh, a process that is clearly intended to circumvent uh, existing barriers, then that will be taken into account subsequently. That's all really I can say about is it possible to, to get around those restrictions. And I guess, you know, we are really talking about that balance between the possibility of exposing a Canadian person, child, you know, to a disease that is ultimately fatal and and is that risk something that people really want to be trying to circumvent? I guess that would be a concern. It is. And uh, I mean, it begs the question for once, how much regard do you have for your fellow Canadians when you do that? And secondly, uh, the awareness that uh, rabies is a disease that develops very, very slowly. Uh, it is not as if, you know, a dog gets infected with rabies and uh, keels over dead the next day. Uh, it is a slowly progressing disease. It is very, very difficult. I honestly would say impossible to diagnose by clinical signs alone, because unfortunately uh, the dog does not turn green or purple when it is infected with rabies. And the clinical signs are quite general in nature until the disease has progressed to a near fatal level. And that can take 
days, weeks, months, uh, in some cases, years. I do believe there is a described human case of uh, somebody who got bitten by a rabbit dog in the foot and it took over nine years for clinical signs to appear. Eventually that person did succumb to rabies. So a lot of it depends on the circumstances. Where did you get bitten? The further in the periphery, the longer it will take for the virus to reach your peripheral and then central nervous system. It's just a longer, a longer travel distance. So all of those factors play into, into the situation. And the other reality is there's no lab test that conclusively can prove in a living animal or in a living dog in this uh, specific case that the dog is in fact infected with rabies. It can be diagnosed, but we need a post-mortem brain sample to do that. So all of that uh, to illustrate why it is important uh, to be mindful of the public health aspects of this disease and to not try and bend and circumvent the rules to the detriment of other Canadians and their pets. For sure. I understand these regulations are put into place to decrease the risk of rabies entering Canada. However, do you think that these rules may also help to protect against some other diseases that may be tagging along in dogs that we've been importing from afar? I'm thinking about conditions such as leishmaniasis, for example, which we know has been imported in imported dogs. Yeah, and leishmaniasis, or leishmaniosis, as, as they call it in some parts, uh, I, I think is the third most important zoonosis when it comes to, to companion animals, right? And certainly when you look at the disease situations in, in many of the countries that are on the list, uh, it's not only rabies. There are other diseases of concern that are present. And certainly, although it is not the primary intent, restricting the importation of dogs from uh, those places with those diseases will, as a collateral byproduct reduce the pressure of uh, bringing some of those diseases to, to Canada. And, you know, it's a very interesting discussion uh, and you should probably have this with people that know a lot more about epidemiology than I do, but uh, certainly effects of climate change play a role here already. A lot of those uh, diseases depend on vectors, so on a way to, to transmit or transport the disease from one animal to another or a human. And those vectors very often sand fleas in, in the case of leishmanosis or or mosquitoes for others, they only exist in certain in certain areas until the climate changes and they can expand their habitat. And all of a sudden you have diseases that can gain a foothold in, in Canada, although they could not previous decades or centuries. So a very, very interesting dynamic development, diseases that are foreign to Canada may not remain foreign to Canada unless we are really vigilant and careful. So anytime a rule is changed, I'm sure that there is a wide variety of responses from people involved in the specific sector. Were there any consultations that were held prior to implementing these changes? When we as, as a regulator need to enact measures in the interest of public health, very often it is a matter of informing different sectors, different communities about the fact that we are doing so. Uh, because really it is not a matter of, of preference or opinion. In most cases, it would be preferable if there were no uh, restrictions or no rules. And that's not really the question that, that we would be asking in, in this context. It's a matter of making sure that people are aware and find ways to accommodate what's required and be compliant. So we absolutely, we, we reached out to um, 
for example, airports, air carriers, to organizations that re represent specialty pet relocators. That is a, a very large business, in, uh, especially in North America, to make sure that the message is, is heard and the message is understood. And uh, in fact, we are currently in, in the process of doing more of that uh, prior to the coming into force on uh, September 28th to make sure that surprises can be kept to an absolute minimum. And what type of feedback has the Food Inspection Agency heard so far from people like veterinarians or dog breeders or other dog importers since you first announced this regulation change? As always, uh, it's a mixed bag, right? Let's be honest. If, uh, uh, if, if importing dogs uh, commercially is your business and uh, somebody comes up with, with ways to make life more difficult for you, you're probably not going to be particularly enthusiastic. And I don't want to point to specific entities about their reactions, but perhaps in a, in a, in a more generalized way, the veterinary profession that sees firsthand the effects that uh, foreign diseases have on, on their clients' pets and certainly appreciate what that would mean for their own diagnostic work and their own practice are generally supportive of those restrictions. So are the uh, national associations for the profession in general. When it comes to Canadians that are pet owners, I would say it's a bit of a split decision. Many of them understand uh, what it could mean for their own pets, and they certainly don't want to be burdened with an additional fear of, uh, of yet another disease uh, in this day and age. So they tend to be supportive of the measures. Other people are seeking more information. They don't necessarily see the context yet. And people that are more intimately familiar with dogs, uh, dog breeders, and so on, there's a lot of understanding for why we are doing what we're doing and why this is necessary. And certainly, last but not least, it's, it's not a contest for our partners in public health and human health, which is really what this measure is uh, mainly aimed at protecting. Considering that the health and disease landscape is constantly changing, sometimes due to climate change, as you mentioned, what sort of review plan is in place to assess or reassess these regulations in the future? So one of the big things is, uh, will we be able to identify a dog that has been vaccinated against rabies from a dog that has been infected with rabies? That's a real challenge uh, at this point in time for several reasons. First of all, the lab can't distinguish between the two. Uh, so when we take a blood sample and send it to the lab to say, can you find antibodies against rabies? The lab will be able to do so, but it's not possible to say whether those exist because the dog was successfully vaccinated against rabies or because the dog is actually infected with rabies. As I said before, uh, the only way to detect or diagnose the presence of the virus is through a post-mortem brain sample. Uh, so that's not, not an option on a living dog. We have to add to that that uh, detecting rabies antibodies is not exactly trivial. It is currently only done by a handful of specialty labs that can do it. And if you send in a sample, you're looking at a turnaround time of... Uh, it's measured in weeks. I, I want to say six, seven, six or seven weeks uh, till you get a result, uh, which makes it very impractical for any sort of travel or import purposes. So that's that's the situation we're in. And from a review perspective, uh, absolutely. I, I don't like uh, uh, restrictions and you know rules more than anybody else. 
So if we find a way to get the same assurance without the restrictions, then we will certainly uh, look at that and embrace it. We have committed to keeping an eye on uh, whatever developments there are in this space to see how we can adapt over time. Yes, I guess we're always a bit limited by the diagnostic possibilities that exist for us, right? So if we can't tell the difference between an infection in a patient and a patient who's been vaccinated, that certainly makes it tricky to change anything until we would have something that was a more sensitive test. Is that correct? That's that's correct. And in the import sphere or in the trade sphere, you have to overlay that with, uh, with another layer of what other documentation is there uh, that might help you in being confident uh, that the dog has been appropriately vaccinated and not infected. And depending what the public health and veterinary public health infrastructure in a particular country looks like, that may be easier to do and in other cases very hard or impossible to do. Because you know yourself, if you keep vaccines in a fridge, in appropriate storage, but you live in a place where you might lose power for hours several times every day, is there a risk that the rabies vaccine that you're going to administer is less effective? or no longer effective uh, because of temperature abuse, right? So those are all factors um, that generally we don't think about, but in this sphere certainly play a major role. Documentation is another one. Who is able to document? Some countries simply do not have a veterinary infrastructure that is geared towards this kind of dog trade, and they don't have provisions in place uh, that are reliable or audited or reasonably safe from people that want to deliberately abuse or exploit uh, such a system so that you know we can't we cannot guarantee that fraudulent certification uh, doesn't exist so all of that is 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 the layer that goes on top of the question do we even have independent lab tests that can tell us what we need to know so on a final note i think that sometimes in the field of regulatory veterinary medicine, there may be a bit of a bad rap, um, given that much of the work of regulating things involves implementing rules and other regulations that may not please everyone. Navigating that protection of animal health and human health, food safety, sector security, it's really a tricky thing to try to balance, to say the least. Could you tell us a bit about why you find your work at the Canadian Food Inspection Agency inspiring on a day-to-day basis? I know it goes far beyond the management of individual diseases like rabies. Well, let me start with the obvious. I get to talk to you about rabies on a podcast, which is pretty cool. You don't get to do that in, uh, in a lot of other jobs. Secondly, although my day job is uh, leading quite a varied group of experts on all matters of animal health. I'm currently uh, in rotation to be uh, the incident manager for uh, the uh, highly pathogenic avian influenza outbreak uh, that we're currently facing. So that's uh, emergency response and uh, you know managing a support team, planning team in a, in, a, in a very focused environment. So those are all things that make the job interesting. It's the variety. You don't know what comes next. And it is not necessarily the notion that we we just want to write regulations to make everyone's life uh, difficult. It's this interface of uh, human health and public health and animal health in a, in a true one health environment that we're striving towards. That certainly is fascinating to me. 
there's still so much we, we, we don't know or haven't really found good approaches to yet. But it's fascinating to see how we are slowly getting there. Thank you very much, Dr. Appeltz, for joining me to discuss this issue and to provide some clarity around these changes to the dog importation regulations in Canada. For more information on the updated regulations, we will share some links to the CFIA website from our podcast page and on the CAS website. If you're a veterinarian in Canada, you may also wish to join the CAS Companion Animal Network to continue discussions on current animal health and disease risks for dogs and cats in Canada. More information is available at CAS.ca. The Animal Health Insights Podcast is a production of the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System. CAS is a division of Animal Health Canada, and it is broad-based support from livestock sectors and government. CAS brings together data and information from across Canada in order to demonstrate animal health and to guide planning on national animal health priorities. Effective disease surveillance can demonstrate the health of our animals, and it enables prompt action to minimize the negative impacts of disease. Funding is provided through the Agri-Assurance Program under the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, a federal, provincial, territorial initiative.